They're very serious about your vision. Yes. We are very serious we're, about your I vision. mean, we're doing a whole podcast. <laughs> you beat I, don't know, I don't know how you get more serious than a podcast. <laughs> That's true. I and, did think this was going to be fun when we started it. Yeah. I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. On today's episode, we're talking about Eurovision fans. First, we deep dive into the history and structure of one of the most passionate fandoms in the world. Second, we talk to two 2023 Eurovision artists who have experienced the darker side of the fandom. Poland's Blanca and Romania's Teodor Andre. Finally, we sit down with Pixie Aventura, an iconic drag queen and an American Eurovision fan. She lets us know exactly what she thinks as we look at what makes a Eurovision performance really pop. We take a look behind the scenes at all the scandal songs and queens. So come along as we traverse all the mysteries of the Euroverse. All right, we're back with another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. That's right. We're talking about you, listener. See, I kind of was excited about this because I thought we were talking about us. Well, it's both. Yes. It's the fandom, the fandom of Eurovision. And for some of you who might say, I don't identify with that, by the end of this episode, maybe you will. In 1984, OGAE was founded. OGAE stands for the Organisation Générale des Amateurs de l'Eurovision. This whole network of fan clubs. Right. Despite um, the language of that title, it was started by a Finnish person, Jari-Pekka Koikalainen. The current president of OGAE International is Simon Bennett, who you'll hear popping into this conversation with some insights. Simon Bennett is the person to talk to when it comes to Eurovision fans. When did you fall in love with the Eurovision fandom? You start thinking <laughs> I'm of not yourself. Sure I am in love with it. <laughs> I love them to bits. And to talk about the structure of the OGAE, every country that either has participated in Eurovision broadcasts Eurovision. A lot of these countries actually have their own club, right? So you get OGAE Australia, OGAE Azerbaijan. OGA International is a federation of like 43 national clubs, and each national club has a very different setup. The member clubs are completely autonomous. You've got like OGA Greece has a fantastic news website. Uh, OGA UK has a fantastic printed magazine that appears four times a year. OGA Finland does the little Eurovision mini cruise, which is such a highlight of people's years. Then there's the little offshoot that we're a part of, uh, <laughs> which is called OGAE ROTW, which stands for Rest of the World, which actually I think is a useful, humbling experience for an American to, to be like just sort of thrown to the side. <laughs> but each of these clubs is uh, a nexus point for a community. Totally. And then when you actually end up going to Eurovision proper, there's something thrilling about meeting all of these people who you've kind of known via the internet. Yes. All of these organizations basically have primary membership and secondary membership options because some people will be members of several. Because it's as serious as citizenship. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. We went for a television filming 
and realized we came to a music festival. You had Eurovision. You had what was called Eurofest, right? Which was a whole other set of theater performances, art gallery shows, environmental walkthrough things that you could do. Educational programs. Yes. A new city hosts every time, right? Yes. If you look at some of the big music festivals, like, I don't know, Coachella or... Fire Festival. (laughs) (laughs) These things that are like every year, I think what actually ends up happening a lot is that the people who live there start resenting it a little bit. Yes. And so what you end up having is like very strict sound curfews. Yeah. And I think the big difference is that when Liverpool hosted Eurovision, it's the first time they hosted Eurovision. So for the city, it's like, this is exciting. Yeah, it took them literally the whole week before they started hating Eurovision fans, which is great. The city is much more willing to deal with those things because it's kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity for the city. It really is like a huge infusion of capital. I do think the countries that submit these cities, what they're choosing are cities that both are big enough and advanced enough to hold the huge influx of people, but also cities that could benefit from an influx of people, right? Absolutely. So to put some of that into sort of actual numbers, Liverpool is a city of roughly half a million people. The estimation of how many people came for Eurovision is about half a million people. So basically the population of Liverpool doubled for that time frame. The estimated economic boost, and these numbers are coming from the Liverpool City Council, is a 54 million pound boost. That's a pretty big boost to a city that is one seventeenth the size of New York City. Oh my God, that was such good math. Thank you. 1,200 media attending. In Liverpool, when they first released tickets, those sold out in 36 minutes. We're talking about such a large number of people that it overwhelms the cities that host. Absolutely. And it overwhelms the arenas. But from a fan perspective, I think one of the things that's so amazing about it is being able to go every year to this contest in a totally different city, in a totally different country, and form these friendships across borders, across generations, like age groups, everything like that. you get to experience a new city with these people. Yeah. So culturally, I think maybe it's more comparable to a Coachella or a Burning Man or like, of course, that have their own sort of vibe to them. But I think the difference is the seasoned people there, they're like, oh, this tent is three feet further over than it was last year. That's how well they know it. But with this, because it's a new city all the time, you really get to experience the repeat in a completely different framework. The city really wants to infuse their identity and their city onto this project. Eurovision is a competition, right? It is a contest. Someone wins at the end of it. When you talk from a distance, you think this is like the World Cup. And the amazing thing about Eurovision is not only do people not exclusively just like root for their own country, which you, I I guess, would kind of assume given that we're talking about music and people have differing tastes and your country might not be sending someone who is like to your taste as a musician. They're not necessarily rooting for the one act that they think is the best. They're rooting for their top 10. And even beyond that, you get to the arena and, you know, if you are talking to someone they'll tell you who their favorite act is. And they'll be like, and I'm not so into, you know, so-and-so. And then so-and-so gets on stage and they are like cheering just along with everyone Absolutely. else. And not just that, like, they're also really curious, like why you like the songs you like. 
if a Eurovision fan meets only people who like the exact same numbers, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Because this cultural exchange kind of means that you go, so interesting that you get that song. Why? So you have something called Euro Club. It happens every night for nine nights in a row. For many years, Euroclub was organized by the host broadcaster. It was originally envisaged as a club where the participants, the crews, could go and relax in the evening. It's not so much for the crews anymore because in the good old days, it just used to be one night on, on, on the Saturday night. Now, with a packed schedule of rehearsals every single night, the crew don't have time to go and party the night away. It was becoming more and more just the fans. So the EBU said to us, it should be the fans who organise this. As the contest has grown in popularity, things have really changed. Last time we were in Malmo, it was really easy to say to that year's acts, why don't you come along to the Euroclub? As time has gone on, their schedules are very complicated and they'll agree to come and then they don't turn up. Getting acts from previous years, a lot of these acts were really delighted to be able to come and perform in front of people who remembered them from the past. But as things have got more and more popular, and acts have also realised that there's a big fandom out there. Uh, a lot of Eurovision former acts have, have got wise to this, and they, they become much more expensive. You need to pay them to perform. You need to pay their accommodation and their travel. I mean, we had one last year who wanted like a seat on the aeroplane for their musical instrument and things like that. They're flying out previous contestants, previous winners. We're talking winners from a couple of years ago. We're talking winners from 30 years ago. They treat their older members, so to speak, the way I feel like Broadway does. Yes. The ultimate Broadway divas are the Patties, are the Bernadettes, are the Bette Midlers. And I think pop music traditionally doesn't hold a 70-year-old yeah. woman in the highest esteem. Right. You go to a nightclub and then you literally watch a 70-year-old woman who has won the competition 30 years ago just nail it and people are screaming and singing along and they're just such fans. And the reality of being a performer is unless you're Beyonce, the best you can hope for is what a Eurovision act has, which is once a year, they can kind of just see the people who are like totally obsessed with them. Last year, <laughs> one of the most moving moments for me was Samantha Janus. She's very well known in the UK. She was in one of the big soap operas over here. And people had forgotten that she sang for the UK at Eurovision. We asked her to come and she agreed. And I met her in the green room beforehand. And she basically said to me, I have no idea why I'm here. <laughs> and I said, you know, and I said, you've got a thousand people out there who remember you from singing in the for UK and they really want to see you. And she said, I can't believe that. <laughs> I spoke to her afterwards and she was really emotional afterwards because it was just incredible for her to get that love and that feedback from something that she is like a tiny moment in her career that she'd kind mm. of forgotten about. I've also said to new Eurovision artists, do you realize that you're in this for life? I think there are a lot of Eurovision fans that sometimes feel as, as much as it is a mainstream competition, that being a super fan is a little niche. Yeah. So to bring up this old song, there is a real corollary with being queer. Even when you go to a, a gay bar or a queer bar and there's like a very high consistency of straight people, yeah, yeah. it often can feel like not a very safe space. Even if they're super supportive people, yeah. it's a little bit like being the main attraction of the zoo. Right. Euroclub in its demographic in some ways is probably similar to a gay club that has a lot of straight people. 
right? Yes. Because of course, there's a high concentration of queer people in that space. Right. But not to the same degree as a full-on queer bar. Of course not. It's a family show, Magnus. (laughs) Yes. But the thing is, you can dress super gay. There were people holding hands. There were same-sex couples like kissing. And it's not like this sort of like event. The size of the contest and the size of what happens around it is both this huge, amazing boon to artists, but also it presents a real challenge. These current artists... They also very often are performing at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. at Euroclub. And then nine hours of interviews. It's an evening rehearsal the night before. It's a what they call the family show, which is like a dress rehearsal essentially the day of. And then is the actual broadcast. If you had a question of what Magnus was saying, it is literally that the semifinal happens three times. The The second second semifinal (laughs) happens three times. And then the the finale happens three times. Do you want to talk a bit about the pre-parties? So these pre-parties are concerts yeah. that are kind of like about hyping up Eurovision. And many people will say that not being at the pre-parties really will hurt you in the competition because this is when people really have their eyes on these. The press starts talking about the the public reaction. Who were people cheering for? Who do people sing along to the song and know every word? You're selected in February. You've been performing on maybe a national broadcast before that point. When do you have to hit the Eurovision pre-party concert circuit if we're talking ESC 2023? I also want to clarify that some of these acts are chosen in March. Right. It's March. Yeah. <laughs> the BCN Eurovision party in Barcelona, which is has become very iconic, in 2023 had three dates. It was March 23rd, 24th, and 25th. So essentially a festival. Then you had the Polish Eurovision party in Warsaw. That was April 1st. Then Israel calling in Tel Aviv, April 3rd. So basically you get one day to travel between Poland and and Israel. Then you had the pre-party ES. Now we're back in uh, Spain, but in Madrid on the 7th and 8th of April. The Eurovision in concert, which has become very iconic in Amsterdam, on the 15th of April. And then the London Eurovision party on the 16th of April. So when you think about that, so you travel from Amsterdam on the 15th to London on the 16th, you perform in London, you're exhausted after this long stretch of Eurovision pre-party performances. It's April 16th. And literally Eurovision every year happens in either the first or second week of May. So you do not even have a full month until the insanity starts. And probably you have like a week until some version of the insanity starts. And during that, at the beginning of May, you're doing your first stage rehearsal. Yes. So that means that in the meantime, the staging has to be figured out. So you're having fittings, you're having a rehearsal with your choreographer and maybe casting your dancers. I mean, it's it's yeah. intense. The other big thing in the lead up to the contest are the betting markets. I think a lot of people listening might go, this is a music competition. What do you mean betting markets? Yeah. This is not sports. But it is a contest, right? Betting markets are a really good aggregator of popular opinion because you're not just getting someone's prediction, you're getting their confidence too, right? Totally, because if, if put someone's putting, yes, yeah, if 100%. someone puts a lot of money behind something, if you listen to some of these like data podcasts, for instance, like the 538 podcast, at least when Nate Silver was on it, it was always like looking at the betting markets as an indicator of like what was going to happen, right? Eurovision fans do the same thing. 
when I was looking at Eurovision World's betting market aggregate, they list 13 major betting markets. So not only are you getting these betting markets, you're getting all of them lumped together to get this sort of like combined betting market score. And the good thing is we here at Mysteries of the Euroverse are going to take things one step further and launch our own betting market for Eurovision. I'm going to put my Venmo in the show notes. <laughs> Feel free to send me any amount of money and I promise you that money will come back to you. Imagine you have just been launched into an international, you know, limelight. Yeah. You do your first rehearsal and then you see you drop 15 spots in the bookies. It's in the news. I think pretty much most people feel somehow associated with the act that their country well, chooses. The, right. How my country does reflects on me. Sure. What the song is reflects on me. I do think that there's an element of which, and we're going to talk to Blanca and Theodore Andre later in this uh, program, uh, but those are two acts who, who I would say the harshest blowback came from individuals in their own countries. Totally, totally. What makes this whole thing even more complicated is when people have opinions about who their country chose, right? Sometimes that actually is less about the artist and it more reflects, I think, actually pretty serious political situation. TVP, which is the Polish uh, public broadcaster, at the time was under the the control of the Law and Justice Party, right, uh, which was in power in Poland. While I was a huge fan of Blanca's performance and her song, and while I feel the criticism of her was really unwarranted, this is the complicated thing about a song contest that is also a cultural exchange, that is also like a European institution. And people didn't trust the news that was coming out of TVP under Law and Justice. And so the people who chose Blanca had no credibility. An American Idol contestant is a contestant. Yeah. Um, a contestant in Eurovision has a delegation. Yes. They have a public broadcaster behind them. With Theodore, we'll even see the fact that as an artist, they sometimes worked against him on the choices that he wanted to make. Yes, that's a really great point. There are two ways that I think that the national broadcaster can interact with what gets called fan bullying. And one is in the selection process. If the national broadcaster does not have credibility with the people in a country, like you're setting up your artist for failure. And then there's Theodore's story, which is the broadcaster not putting the resources that they should have put into his performance. These fans, they're fans of the artists. They're fans of the cultural exchange of it all. Yeah. They're fans of the language exchange. Yeah. It's really amazing in a time that's very split that I think at the core of the fandom of Eurovision is this curiosity and interest in otherness. Okay, so in the next segment, we're interviewing two Eurovision acts from 2023. Poland's entrant, Blanca, overcame a torrent of fan criticism and some serious controversy involving TVP, which is Poland's public broadcaster. Similarly, we're talking to Teodor Andre, who had to deal with both the darker side of the Eurovision fandom and also a complete lack of support from his country's public broadcaster, TVR. And then, if you're a Eurovision fan in New York City, you surely know Pixie Aventura. She hosts basically every Eurovision-themed event in the city, as well as being a lauded drag queen in her own right, having been featured on Hulu's Drag Me to Dinner. But first, we're going to listen to a clip from Blanca's Eurovision song, Solo. It's kinda crazy How else to phrase it We 
Okay, so this next segment is kind of crazy in all the right ways. We are here with Poland's pop diva, Blanca, who took Eurovision by storm with her fierce dancing and catchy pop confection solo. Blanca, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Your first single was Better, which you wrote yourself. Yes or no? Yes and no. Because I kind of count my first single as solo. Better is a song that I wrote and I released by myself with no label nothing and you know the craziest thing is that better is like charting in some countries right now the power of eurovision right (laughs) yeah exactly so when you talk about the songs that you've written what were you drawing on was it real life experience well definitely my life like in boys like toys there's an actual night please blanca dish dish tell us (laughs) No, I'm not. Are we going to break some news, Blanca? I'm not telling that story. But if you want to know more, you should listen to the second verse. People can call in with their fan theories. Let us know. Yeah. With Solo, you won the national finals. But there was a bit of a backlash online. Oh, yeah. um, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just a little bit, right? (laughs) Traditionally, you think of Eurovision fans as very supportive. And and I think more and more with the advent of the internet, um, you're, you're seeing a little bit of a change, right? What was it like to be in the center of that storm? It was a crazy time, for sure. (laughs) Absolutely insane. Obviously, I'm a human, so I did have hard times and harder evenings and harder mornings, waking up, absolutely. But I just kept on thinking I need to focus on getting prepared for Liverpool. Having been to see Eurovision twice now, the the fandom when you're in person, it's really incredible how supportive and and lovely the fandom is. At the same time, there is like a growing problem with this fandom that's been traditionally known for being so supportive with cruelty online. Do you think there's anything the festival could do or should do to protect artists? I feel like for sure there's something we should all do. We should bring it up because sometimes I feel like people don't want to talk about it. They're like, oh, it's all all flowers and rainbows. And it's not. And it's not. And I felt it on my skin. It's so cruel what happens online. And not only during Eurovision, we all have opinions and different opinions. But the stuff that I have in my DMs, this uh, should be absolutely illegal. Like I I heard Chanel got bullied. So I heard that and it didn't make me feel better, but I was the kind of, okay, so I'm not the the only one that gets bullied. It like points to the fact that this is an issue with like a a broader culture. It's not even about one person. It really is about like how we are treating each other. The the contest says united by music. Yeah. Like, why are you bullying people? So much of the hate was so awful. And it even seemed to me like it had nothing to do with your performance and much more fundamentally a real mistrust that some people have of TVP. Basically, ever since law and justice came into power, do you think that's the case? And do you think reforms should be made to insulate TVP a little bit more from the government and from politics? It's hard for me to speak on it because a few months ago I was working with TVP and many artists in Poland are working with this television. And I feel like 
it, it's really hard for me to talk about it. I do feel like a lot of the hate and a lot of the, the bad comments came from that connection. Absolutely. But especially for a new artist like yeah. me, like I'm not in the music business for years. Right. I'm here for not even a year. Yeah. So it's really hard for a new artist to set any rules or yes. have a voice. For sure, what can we do? These are the pre-selections. In Poland, it's connected with the television and you do it or you don't do it. But then all the hate comes to you. Right. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Nobody is is knocking down the door of the broadcaster. It's a hard topic. And every year the artist wins and it shouldn't be taken away from the artist. And I feel like it is. So hopefully people will start to understand that this is music and it's like separate for an artist from everything else that's going on in a country. You were kind of the big comeback story of Eurovision 2023. <laughs> I think the first turning point was the Beba dress you wore on the turquoise oh, yeah. carpet. Incredible. <laughs> it was so good. Loved it. That was so much uh, fun. And, so- and honestly, also, I thought it was, it's, it's such a powerful thing to engage directly with a lot of yes. what was being said online. Were you afraid of doing that? Were you like, this is only going to make the backlash worse? In no. I was actually super excited about that. I couldn't wait. We were thinking with my stylist. She was like, oh, I have this idea for this huge dress. And she showed me the dress. And I was like, you know what? There's so much space on it. We should write something on it. And she looked at me like, what do you want to write on it? My first idea was to write all the different names, all the bad words, everything that people called me. At the end of the day, we decided to just put a baby on it. So that would be more powerful. I remember her asking, okay, what color should the Beba be? And I was like, pink, you know, like, <laughs> you, you have to make it real Beba. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that was so much fun to just wear it and embrace it in a way. We also have to talk about that first rehearsal in Liverpool where you oh. unveiled a whole new staging and it blew people away immediately online. The clip was, everybody was talking about it. What was the inspiration behind the revamp? You changed the staging team. Um, or no? Well, or... you know what? At the pre-selections, there was no staging team, um, <laughs> okay. kind of, in a way. Um, so that was the change. So, <laughs> there was a team. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do. I knew after the pre-selections that I wanted to do the, the revamp and, you know, the dance break for sure. So we just got in the studio. We did it in one session super fast. I knew exactly where we were going with it. And then I took it to my choreographer and how busy I was, it helped me with all the negative stuff because I, I wasn't able to like sit in, at home and think about it. The dance break was amazing. Did you always know that you wanted that a part of the performance? Uh- Absolutely, yes. I've been dancing since I was four or five years old. So pretty much my whole life. Were there oh, yeah. any other artists at Eurovision that you, you felt like you became particularly close to? Absolutely, absolutely. It's nice that you ask about it because I... I'm doing a live with Iru from Georgia. Today, we became kind of like the Eurovision friends. We're still in touch and we're texting and we're trying to catch up as much as we can. Everything, every artist was really amazing. Just even when we we were running through the wardrobes, we were like, oh, hi, how are you? High five. (laughs) The atmosphere there was absolutely incredible. This started when we were doing the pre-parties together, like in different countries and stuff. Can you talk about the pre-party circuit and, and what that's like from an artist's point of view? You kind of get to feel the vibe of Eurovision. 
at the pre-party. My first pre-party was in Sweden, I believe. And it was amazing. People knew every single word. (laughs) And that was like literally two weeks after the pre-selections or something. That was like super fast. And I was in shock. I'm in Sweden and people are singing my song. (laughs) This is when I realized the power of Eurovision fans and how amazing they are. And they're just so into it. The video for Boys Like Toys is amazing. How did the concept of that video come about? Well, the video concept started from the thought of turning boys into toys and into (laughs) teddy bears. It should not be taken too seriously. Like boys are not like toys and we shouldn't play with their feelings. But (laughs) watch out, don't try to play us. I saw a guy doing a reaction on, on YouTube and he just stood up and started dancing. He started doing the full-on floor choreography, like, in his apartment. I was like, that's exactly what I want people to feel. I want them to have fun and enjoy. I couldn't help but thinking when I was like, actually, even Boys Like Toys in a way, too, but but better in solo. They're thematically connected, right? This this idea yeah. that, that you as a woman have agency over your own sexuality and are often better off single or solo. Of course. Yeah, if you think about it, it's all connected. When you're writing songs or choosing songs, is that something you consciously think about? Well, I, I think about it because I, I'm i going through it. I was in some relationships and for now, obviously, I'm better off solo and <laughs> I'm just focusing on my career and my work and I can't have someone distracting me, especially when the person is not good for us. I feel like my music will be like a relationship advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look into verse two, everybody. Verse two, verse two. I'm still at the same stage in life, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not in love. We're not suddenly getting an album that's all about, I I Um, love this man so much. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, an uh, an album of wedding tunes by Blanca. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Not for a while. (laughs) Um, Blanca, thank you so much for talking to us. We are such huge fans of yours. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having me again. Okay. We are here with Theodore Andre, who's DGT, represented Romania in last year's Eurovision. Welcome, Theodore. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you talk about your experience growing up with Eurovision? I remember watching the show with my parents when I was like eight and nine years old. And I remember telling my mom that uh, my biggest dream when I was a kid was being part of the great Eurovision, you know? Oh, my God. When I was seven, I started taking piano lessons, but it didn't uh, really appeal to me because we were only learning like... Bach, Mozart, and Bayern and stuff like that. We weren't actually taught about musical theory and what's really behind a um, modern day song. As time has gone by, I started writing my songs, especially for Eurovision once a year. And my first song for Eurovision was called Nule Place in Romanian. And it was not that good of a song, but I uh, it was one of my first songs I've ever written. Great. It didn't manage to to do anything, this song. So DGT, it was the first year when I I was like, uh, I'll I'll sign up the song. It doesn't matter anyways, because I'm not going to get picked. (laughs) I remember the the day they published like the 12 finalists from the national final. I was with my friends and my colleagues from the 
uh, theater band I play in, visiting some mountains and stuff like that. And it, it was early in the morning. We were waiting because the the national television posted the finalists on their website in the morning. I didn't even have the courage to, to check right, the website right. myself. It was one of my friends that got their phone. And actually, my name, my first name is actually yeah. way down in the alphabet. And I was the last one written there because it was in alphabetical order. Your album, Fragile, it's it's very honest and it's sometimes it gets pretty dark, you know. Um, so many of the songs uh, are about relationships that um, are ultimately hurtful or painful. I was 10 and I was writing some not that good songs. I was such a kid that I would just place my phone next to the speaker, make the like the instrumental play, play from my PC and then shout over it. <laughs> I got attached to a girl. I wrote a song about her. So it was my first love song. I even made some Spanish lyrics as well because I learned the Spanish in school and I thought it would be special. And I was expecting her to be like, oh, my God, you wrote a song for me. That's so cute. But she was like, oh, my God, you're so cringe. Oh no. It was like the exact opposite reaction. And yeah. then she showed her friends, which already were really, really huge haters of mine. We had this thing where every boy had a crush on a specific girl in the class, except for me, because my, my crush told me my song was shit. <laughs> my, my song from, from SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They would go like way too misogynistic but yeah. i was completely against that just instinctively yes and, and so what i would just go like you can't go to a, a girl in the class while she's like wiping the board and hit her or grab yeah. her by the hair and stuff like that that's that's immoral and they would go like you're doing this because you're gay aren't you there were some months on end that most of my colleagues thought i'm just gay because i would protect my girl colleagues some guys they follow me and they came to me in the park and thrown my friends away and they tried to hit me and and embarrass me and make me do stuff that I didn't want to. And and they even had knives and they they, they were eight wow. people. It, these were kids who went to your school that, that you knew yeah. came to school. I was so afraid to tell my parents about all of these problems that I was facing daily. This was way too much for me to handle on my own. Coming home every day, crying myself to sleep, wishing never to come back to school again. Jeez. Sometimes I still think about those, those things. Now, there have been... A lot of reports that TVR made it very difficult for you in Liverpool, starting with the fact that they rejected a lot of your staging ideas. I thought that every country should have like their music video. I didn't think there was any other way than this. They were just like, yeah, yeah, you don't need a music video. They don't want to pay yeah. for something. Yeah, exactly. And then we, they, then they would go like, come on. You're 18. Let the professionals do the job, please. I was planning on having all the dancers I had in the national fan. The the two boy dancers would be dressed like completely in white and have their hands painted in black. So then every time I'm trying to escape, they, they would touch me and leave marks on me. When I would go to the high nose, all of the dancers would get my jacket off. And I had a tank top, which was filled with uh, silver sequins. There were lights all over it. And so if you point all of the lights in that tank top sequin thing, you will just yeah. explode in tons of other lights and colors. So that was basically my main idea. But then they didn't agree on it. They told me it's way too distracting having this complex thing. I was invited to a radio station and they told me to perform like a DGT uh, in an acoustic version. One day later, the 
biggest boss in the national television called my head of delegation telling him that this acoustic version is the one that we should send to Liverpool. Sending an acoustic version to Eurovision is like you'd better get a pencil in your right eye. It's like uh, going going to Eurovision to perform a song in an acoustic version when every instrument is literally playback, is lip-synced. It's extremely stupid. It's not like small stupid. They wouldn't say anything about the, the staging except from what would you say if you were dressed in a black satin Kimono, white, with a guitar that, hold on, my mind exploded with hearing this. So you dressed in a black satin kimono with a guitar that looks like a pong. Because it's a song called DGT, like fingers. And I was like, oh no. Oh no. No. But the least I could do was talk to the stylist and she said that it would be cool if I would just wear a blazer with shorts as I wore in the live session before the national final. And I was like, that seems better than a kimono, yeah. Um, (laughs) I've sent them like two or three music video scripts. And I remember that one of them, I actually printed it and left it on the head of delegation's desk. And it was never opened. Are you kidding me? I'm 100% sure. He told me, "Uh, it's okay, try to do it. And then if I like it, we can continue. So I wrote the whole script all over again. And I invested with my own money that I've got out of a concert in the music video. One of the main reasons they told me they wouldn't ever do this music video is because it would take so much time to get the edit done and stuff like that. And I recorded that video and three days later, it was all finished. I've sent it to the... uh, staging director and he told me he liked it so i was like great this can't go better and i've sent it to the head of delegation with the modifications and he told me he absolutely doesn't want me to post it there was a scene with me in chains and there was a scene with me covered in red paint was it like tvr didn't like the sort of sexuality of it there is a huge huge battle in between the different heads of delegations that Romania has ever had. Between the two male head of delegations, I would win the national selection and the, the head of delegation from this year would go like, yeah, dude, we can do this. This is going to be amazing and stuff like that in the first days. And then an ex-head of delegation would post on Facebook. This was extremely hilarious. So there were some posts be, uh, before the national selection that said, oh my God, this guy has dark horse potential. And then I saw the ex-head of the delegation reply that only said, what dark horse? This boy is maximum a pony. Oh, and I was the like, ex-head the ex-head of the delegation? That is so unprofessional. Are we not like in the same team? The head of the delegation told me to not ever post this video, this music video. I thought, okay, so this is the way the, the things are going. I'll post the video before the national television gets in their hours of work. So nobody can call me, nobody can text me, nobody can argue with me about this music video. The head of delegation. He would uh, get other people to call my parents and tell them that due to my choice of posting the music video, I've stepped on the contract. So I have to pay them 400,000 euros. 400,000 euros. Obviously, my parents got scared because 100,000 euros is not like you, you go with yeah. 400,000 euros in your wallet every day. There, was, there is this uh, thing in Eurovision that 
every uh, delegation sends a video of the performance they have prepared. And then um, the organizing team gives them back a video of the exact performance portrayed by some actors that they have chosen, especially for this thing, exactly as the staging director from the specific country asks for. I knew that I had to see this because no one has told me anything. And it's a one day link only. After 24 hours, it expires. You can never see it again. I ask on the uh, WhatsApp group, where is the video scene? Hey, did we get the video from the BBC, the one with the scene? I go to fitting, I uh, trying the some costumes and stuff like that. And they would go like, come on, you haven't seen the video? Uh, oh, that is they, they didn't let me watch the video when they received the link telling me that just as I did with the music video, posting it without them approving it, why would they be sure that if they show me this, I wouldn't post it as well? Not knowing the staging that you're going to do. Like, that's yeah. in, that's wild. So the, the link has expired. And they've shown me a phone recording oh, of really? a laptop screen with the staging. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. I, I, I just got to say it was bad. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> Why do we have volcanoes? <laughs> I've watched... Eurovision every single year since I was eight. I know what staging means. A great staging can save a shit song. This has been my dream for all my life now. And the best I can do is be extra enough so then I can drag the attention to me instead of watching the shit that surrounds me. <laughs> you released the EP of Eurovision medleys. The hardest was, I think, the Finnish song, Cha Cha Cha. That oh, was, that yeah, was the yeah. hardest yeah. pronunciation, right? Most of the native language songs, right. those were the real challenges. Yes. But I, I took the songs, ch changed the arrangements, so we like, I don't know, we would give a different vibe. Tadar, thank you so much. This was really, really wonderful. It was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. The second album is on the way. The Eurovision Medley EP is out right now. Fragile, my debut album, is still on uh, all the streaming platforms, so we can stream that as well. Euroverse. We are here with Pixie Aventura. Pixie is a fixture of the New York drag scene and a Fire Island star. You can catch Pixie these days on Hulu's Drag Me to Dinner and at pretty much every gay bar NYC has to offer. Pixie, welcome. Hi, ciao, como estai? Oh my god. We? She is multilingual for Eurovision. I Look am multilingual. Oh, such a fan already. So Pixie is a bit different than most of our game playing guests because we're finally featuring an American who knows a thing or two about Eurovision. So Pixie, I think we, we just want to start out with you telling us a little bit about your relationship to the contest interview. I think I discovered it as many people of our age group, probably with Lorraine winning Euphoria. And um, it was mostly the song. I really wasn't d diving into the show uh, as much until, I'm going to say 2018, when Netta won. And that's when I started really diving into it. And I feel because as a drag queen, I'm always trying to like find something unique that's something I connect with that the audience hasn't really seen. And Eurovision, in a way, just opened up a lot of new cultures and artists that I would have never really heard of before. The United States really controls the music industry a lot, and all you get is top 40. And after a while, I'm just kind of like, oh, my God, what else is out yeah, there? Yeah, something new. Plus, it's really gay and really camp. And I'm a drag queen, so I think that goes together <laughs> hand in hand. It works pretty well. Yeah. 
you're not one of those very serious realist drag queens, you know. I'm a very versatile drag queen. Oh, so, uh, I can have that serious moment, <laughs> and then I can be stupid. So you brought it up, like the connection between Eurovision and drag, everything from costumes, big statement pieces. And it kind of has this maximalist aesthetic to it. A goal of elevating every performance to something bigger and better than reality. Basically, the way this game works is we're going to show you some Eurovision clips. And we want you to react in the moment to what you're watching and give us your thoughts. And then you're going to have to make a final call, which is whether or not this act has the royal touch to survive New York's cutthroat drag scene. Mm. Or is it merely a drag for everyone watching? Mm. Okay. Does it, do, do you feel up to the challenge? I do. Oh, God, this feels like one of those, like, Facebook groups for Eurovision, which I'm about to leave because they are the most toxic thing. Oh, my I've God. So you host a Eurovision uh, screening night. Tell us about that. I have such curiosity, particularly, like, in New York, like, what is the Eurovision community like? Who shows up to a Eurovision screening night? So I think with a lot of people that are fans of Eurovision, you're definitely going to get those. But there was also a lot of people that were new and they actually came out loving it. Yeah. I mean, it's a long time to invest for a finale. I think it was four hours yeah, this year. quick four hours. I think it's one of the longest finales. It was, yeah. yeah. Latvia should have been there. Malta should have been oh, there. I, Sudden Lights. Malta, Sudden Lights was great. Malta was Rob, they killed that. Like that's such a good performance. Such a good performance. Cornelia Jacobs in I that pool. Love Cornelia. Oh, Jacobs. She is great. And you know what? I didn't think it was possible. She sounds even raspier at four a.m. Yeah, we yeah, saw yeah. her at Euro Club uh -huh. at four a.m. We were like, oh, she's going to be struggling tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And no, there she is. The mystique of this, like absolutely, this like hard, wasted yeah, 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 wasted like three cigarettes <laughs> hanging out of her mouth at the same time. You know. <laughs> Just basically like a modern day Elaine Stretch ready to uh... <laughs> Let three. Yes. Oh, I love the Croatians. I loved it. And there's... people were hating on it. I'm like, this is just camp, y'all. A hundred percent. And there's also something to me about these middle-aged guys getting middle-aged. Maybe they're more than middle-aged. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that a quote they had when they were gonna have a threesome with who? Or oh, not a, oh, or an orgy, oh, sorry. The, the Joker Out Boys. Oh, that's what oh, it was. Really? They were like, we will have sex with them. And then the Joker <laughs> Out Boy did like a little photo of like, about to have sex with Let Three. <laughs> <laughs> it's ever since we won on marriage, I think the world is just such a better place. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Where? We've derailed. Yes, so far. The game is going great. Listen, so the first link is a song called Russian Woman, which may surprise you, uh, is a song from Russia. <laughs> and, uh, represented Russia in 2021. What I really liked about this, because it was like blending like cultural references, but like making it really contemporary, almost rapping in a way. And I mean, she's like a Russian doll just giving me that floating ballet like dance that they do, and I'm living it. And then she's a Russian doll, comes out, and she's in a nice uh, Rosie the Riveter <laughs> jumpsuit. I mean, as a drag performance in itself, just coming out in that floating dress right there. I mean, that already people would be like, what? Now, as a performance, I think we've peaked after the dress reveal. It's just kind of giving me the same vibe, and I feel like we need to build up for something. Yeah, I do think the reveal came pretty early in that performance. If it was a drag show, there would be more 
more people in that dress. Can I have six people? So. Yeah. yeah. They should have all come out of the dress. Or like just the head is sticking out. Oh, I love that. I think this should be the game, how you would improve this routine. Yeah, so, I mean, there's videos in the background now, but it's not really adding to anything. When like a new queen shows up on stage, they do all the tricks in the beginning, and I'm like, so now what? But I also think she can trust the fact that like the dress she came in on, it's such a cool thing that we can actually live with it a little bit longer. It would have been hysterical if they would have found a way to have like everyone in there. She's talked about it in terms of like this sort of modern Russian woman coming out of this sort of like traditional like box. If what happened was you got the full spectrum of what a modern Russian woman looks Absolutely. like coming out of that dress. Missed opportunity. A hundred percent. Okay. So we are we are fixing Eurovision act by act. Yes. Already <laughs> off to a strong start. So next up, we have Alina Nechayeva. This is La Forza from Estonia 2018. Estonia this year was one of my favorites. Oh, ballad. Bridges. Bridges. It's a little snoozy. But vocally, vocally it was the most demanding, one of the most demanding yes. songs in that show. Yes. And she nailed it. And I the piano like we, that played itself. I feel like we put a little bit too much emphasis on the fact that we had a self-playing piano. And it says Estonia. <laughs> that did push me over the edge. I didn't like that. And talking about Estonia, we're now going to 2018. Okay. Already camp. We saw this so much, I believe, in that year and those years surrounding with like visuals onto dresses. I feel like she kind of she started the trend. She may have been you the big trendsetter. Don't worry, this is not going to be the last one that you see. Okay. <laughs> I feel like most of these things probably come from drag. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's campus fun. So she's gorgeous. We were introduced with a beautiful visual. What is going to happen now? We should have waited to do the visuals now. I think we should right. like track it with the music. Yeah. This would be a perfect number to do in a drag pageant, but it would have to go into a dance number. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Again, people could come out from under that dress. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, the first time I saw a number like this, it wasn't about the visuals, but it was a gown that big. It was choreographed by, it's not the actress, Jessica Lang. Uh, she's oh. a choreographer, and she had someone in this beautiful gown. I saw this years ago, and like she would twist throughout the whole piece, and there were other dancers, and she like mm -hmm. finally was able to get ripped out. So lyrical dancers would have been cool. The problem with lyrical dancers in Eurovision is that they go overboard. Yeah, and I'm like, subtlety is key. <laughs> I don't need y'all to be doing Cirque du Soleil on me. I feel like when they use lyrical dancers, most of the time it's like singer, uh -huh. and then like the scene behind it, oh, and it, and the scene is always like they're yeah. in love. Yeah, so it's, it's like a lot. It's of like this, they left on a dance know? performance on the TV behind them. Coming up, we have. Zero Gravity, which is Australia's 2019 entry. Already, this is camp. I believe she started the trend of zip-tie crowns. 
because now they're everywhere. Is that, I didn't even, I need to get mine. I didn't even know. <laughs> this is a fierce drag number. I mean, I mean, alone with the floating spirit of Christmas past. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's got like a techno beat to it. I mean, you can't lose with this. Not to bring everybody down. But when she's been interviewed about this, she talks about it in terms of, it's a response to the postnatal depression that she had after having her son and the feeling of weightlessness that she felt. Were. And I was So that's like, the Babadook. Yeah. <laughs> I so think that's, that's the what the Babadook the gay icon, the Babadook. Even, even camp now, even more camp. Like, you, you guys... I know, what a way to express postnatal depression. That's the campiest well, way you can possibly... Uh, um... Career. No. <laughs> Dramatica, <laughs> <laughs> like the whole album. Yes, is yeah, yeah, like hundred percent. I'm a fan of putting a dance beat to trauma. Yes, this <laughs> part, bitch. Those trills. But that's the thing. Even vocally, it's camp. Yes. Yes. Just listening to this, you're like, this is Too a drag much. queen. Yes. Well, it's like, it's camp and it knows it. Because exactly. I think so, so many times people are camp and like, it's totally an accident. Yeah. Okay, you can address me directly. Like, <laughs> I don't need um, The only thing I would change about it is I need something to change on the spirit. Because oh, we just see a silhouette, yeah. but like something at the end where it's just like, I'm free of it. Like it changes into Devon Sawa and we're fine? Absolutely. I love it. Okay. <laughs> In, in Casper. Yeah. <laughs> that was my queer enlightenment is when he oh, came down the oh, stairs. Oh, totally. This moment, there should have been like a light of like on the spirit or something where like it's released. Like perhaps like some projectile vomiting or something, like a little exorcist Absolutely. style. <laughs> I don't know. I'm new to this staging thing. I think. Overall, that performance was so simple, but well done. Yes. Yeah, and it's also wild because they like they had to wheel that thing in <laughs> because they can't fix uh, uh, anything to the right, floors exactly. or anything like that. Great okay, number, we're now bringing it back to recent again. Uh -huh. uh, still high in the air with Evidemont Lazara. And uh, she's France. So you just start. Her aura is just fucking diva. It's oh, delicious. Incredible. It's like a perfect ingredient for a fucking. And I have bitch. to say, there was a moment that I fell in love with her, which is in a press conference. Someone asked, "Oh, your first re rehearsal was so nervous, and this time you felt really comfortable and really great. What did you do between the first rehearsal and the second rehearsal?" And she said, "Xanax." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm obsessed with you." <laughs> <laughs> to me. The way that this worked is because there was a reveal. Yes. If she would have just stayed up there and done a, nothing, like I would have been like, ugh. Yeah. The reveal saved it for me. I think she should have gotten off of this at one point. Yeah. She felt like stuck on there sometimes. I think this is like a strutting song. Yeah. They literally wheeled her in on right. top of that thing. Because they have like no Always. time. I think there was like a major mess up in camera direction on this okay. one. Yes. Because it's like, if you were in the arena, that was so cool when that dress yes. fell. Yes. And then it became the fucking disco ball. Oh, and it, it just was like happened. A... The dress is gone and you're like, And you're like, happened? oh. At that point, I think we don't need a dress. Right. If I would have done the disco ball when it happens, and then it just comes down. That's it. And yes. like, it walks off, and it's just like lights just going out. 
He's just strutting down a fucking runway. When I saw the music video, I wish it literally just stand still the whole time. I yeah. had so much hope because like right. she knows how to put, make so much drama into one hand. Exactly. Movement. The yeah, thing but, that I appreciate most about this in terms of the kind of like drag camp aspect of it is like from the song to the way she performs it, it is like the Frenchiest yes. Frenchy song you could come up with. If you're gonna have a, you know, French chanteuse up there, she has to definitely, like, at the end of the bridge, you know sing what? France on a long note. I take it back. I think where she ends is perfect. Okay. I think the beginning should have just been her walking on stage. Nobody knows what's gonna happen. Oh. And then she slowly just winds up walking up, like it's like a cylindrical Eiffel oh. Tower. Uh, and I would prefer to actually look like the Eiffel Tower, because that's I how mean, French you want it. Yeah. I know. I mean, Can she, she already. Or, or could it be a giant baguette? <laughs> oh my god. Because <laughs> uh, I will say, already, the moment she sings France yeah. in her very French song, yeah. they light up the French flag. Absolutely. Like, huge. Not France. <laughs> Sorry. France! <laughs> <laughs> Then they like shafted her. I, they really they did. Really, and her finger thing I during the voting care. has. Well, but no, this is but, this is my this one is problem like, with Eurovision. It really affected her career. I it's know. Crazy. It's like it's like being a fan of like a Disney Channel star or something. Mm -hmm. the, these yeah. artists are not allowed to step out at all. So <laughs> she like does the lightest thing ever, and everyone's like, "I'm so horrified." This woman comes and basically right. says what everyone is thinking. Exactly. Yeah. No. Which is like fuck <laughs> that. She was like, I stood on a goddamn disco ball for three minutes. Next, we have another number from France. This uh -huh. is Divine from 2008, Sebastian Tellier. So as I just opened it up, uh, I'm officially connecting this to a drag king number. Yes, he is about as drag king as a as a straight cis guy can get. You better with, let that wind blow those four hair balls. <laughs> <laughs> you need to give me more crazy uncle at the wedding vibes. <laughs> oh, it timed so perfectly. Oh, this is a drag number. But like, this needs to be performed live. This is not a lip sync. And I need more helium. Yeah. I need you to go all the way. Because yeah. he already lost it. He's already lost it. That's the thing. It should have been a tank. Yeah. Oh my god. Violet Chachki. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. And then all the drag kings dressed like him in the back. This has potential to be a great drag number. It was just pussyfooting. I, yeah. I need you to go full throttle. When they asked Sebastian, the artist, about it, he said that the inspiration for the production was the old-fashioned sexual ways of a California guy. As told by a Frenchman <laughs> in the 80s. Eurovision is like a proof the time is a construct. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to send that to a drag king and I think they're gonna do brilliant work with it. He's suspended, he's floating attached to helium balloons, uh -huh. and he descends by breathing more and more in of it. Yes. So as his voice gets higher, he gets lower, and then he eventually comes down to the ground. That's how science works. Helium I, makes you float. I, I think solid C's throughout high school. Oxygen so. is what he's intaking in order so he can go down. But there's less helium in the he's balloons. He's emptying it from the balloon, which is what's holding holding him, him up. 
There we go. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Oh my god, I did I say something right? Oh my god. No, we just, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> we just put it in a different order. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I'll take it. We have Wait, one, one more. more video to show you. And this is the last time Turkey was at Eurovision. This is Khan Bonomo, okay. Love Me Back. Okay. I'm seeing that <laughs> Mi mixed with Shellhouse Rock, mixed with Newsies in a way. <laughs> oh, okay. We got breakdancing. Is a Batman, like literal Batman? This Halloween special brought to you by Eurovision. Have they made the boat? Yeah, they made the boat. You were not impressed by the boat. No. <laughs> you said boat, and I understood what that was because I thought it was a coffin. <laughs> I think it is a coffin. I don't think it's oh, a boat. Is it, oh, it looked I like think a it's boat. A coffin. It's a coffin? Yeah. I guess bath. Yeah. yeah. Coffin. I don't know if that's salvageable as a drag number. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, I thought I thought here and now is when we were going to get Turkey back into the competition. <laughs> I'm okay with Turkey coming back, but that was but that, that wasn't camp. That was just yeah. ridiculous. I thought it was kind of creative how the fabric transformed. No? No, you didn't feel that way? <laughs> they said, we don't have budgets, so we're just going to put these capes on you. You guys create shapes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm him looking like Jailhouse Rock, Elvis Presley. And the dancers are from the musical Bat Boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they, they were too old for Newsies and now they're in Bat Boy. <laughs> yeah, um... That's a chop for me. Yeah. That's okay. a chop. Pixie, thank you so much That's for it? joining us. That's it. That's it. We've we've been talking for an hour. You, you know, know that? this is mostly a game. Yeah. We didn't go into detail. Well, oh no, this is oh, wait, wait, you do you have detail? I mean, I mean, I'm a Eurovision. I'm your first Eurovision. Well, that's true. Senior. That's true. We are dealing with an expert, so we maybe talk about <laughs> Eurovision. <laughs> we should have you have you back for our very oh, special American Song Contest and episode. A true experience that was. Who cares what the state music of Delaware is? Like that's the problem. To any listeners in Delaware, we do love you. <laughs> I just, the minute that that Macy Gray was not continuing on, I lost all reason to... Wait, was Macy Gay? Macy Gay. <laughs> oh <laughs> my God, Macy Gay. Macy Gray, Michael Bolton, and Cisco. And Cisco. Oh, and Alaska. Yeah, uh, Jewel. Uh, Jewel. Okay, and I want to end on, on my favorite Cisco story, which is that uh, he oh. gave an interview about how he came up with the tune for the thong song. The tune. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's another great melody. Uh, but probably he, one of the most beautiful orchestrated pop I songs mean, just in history. Perfect. <laughs> and, uh, well, what he said is he was on the beach with a friend of his, and a woman walked by in a thong, and his friend went, thong, th thong, thong, thong. And then Cisco went, wait a second, what if we reverse that? Thong, th thong, thong, thong. That's how pop hit is made, people. <laughs> and with that, it's been lovely having Pixie here. I'm, I'm <laughs> Thank you so hopefully, much. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we get Pixie back at some yes. point. But it might be over. <laughs> well, Magnus, I think that was another great episode. Yes, and tune in next week because we're talking about the different processes that countries use for selecting their Eurovision entries. Particularly what each country's selection rules say about what they value, and also what they want to project to the world. 
We're also going to be interviewing 2023 act Andrew Lambrew. I think you'll be as surprised by how Cypress selected him as we were. Finally, Daily Show correspondent Troy Awada drops by to look deeper at the history of Eurovision National Finals in a game we're calling National Not-So-Final Answer. In any case, we hope you have a great week, and until then... Happy Eurovision! Eurovision.